welcome to episode 127 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Gillian Sheffer. Joanna Wilson. Bunny number 6594. Kat. Shannon. Natalie Barnes. Laura Neal. Gillian Howlett. Emma Rowantree. Dildo Bullbaggins. I'm so jealous that you got to say that one. <laughs> questionable goat. I it's made up. I've, it's made up for now that I've got to say questionable goat. I'm happy. Desiree Gray. Jennifer Mullen. Kate Seaman. Ruth Guana. Jackie. Movie Grouch and Fanboy Podcast. Karen. Ken Milligan. And Thomas Perez Montelongo. Thank you so much for being our Patreon subscribers. I have a feeling that I've read out a number of names repeatedly over the last few weeks. Uh, I'm sorry if I did, but there you go. <laughs> you, you you are lucky enough to get your name read out numerous times. Unfortunately, on Patreon, when people delete their subscription, resubscribe, or they change their subscription, Patreon just does it as a new subscription every time. Uh, so then it comes up for me as a new subscription. So that's why if you keep hearing your name being called out, that might be why. And just uh, let's just roll with it and pretend it's not happening. Our film review this week. Our film review is Hush. Hush was released in 2016. It has 6.6 out of 10 on IMDb and 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? Yes, please. A deaf writer who retreated into the woods to live a solitary life must fight for her life in silence when a masked killer appears in her window. What were your thoughts on this film? I didn't mind it. I'm not a massive slasher fan. This is very much in that slasher thriller Home mode. invasion. Mode. And this one was okay. I didn't mind it. I thought it had some good elements to it. I was a little bit apprehensive when you said this is what we were going to watch, that the whole film was going to be silent, because I was like, I don't know how I'll react to that, because we're so used to having some kind of sound effects. But actually, they used the silence really well. I thought it was at key moments we switched to almost her point of view or her, or at least what she was not hearing. And it was a very effective device. There was two reasons why I wanted to watch this film, because I'm not really a home invasion, gory, slasher, murdery film person. I find them quite stressful. And I will say that, that I had a I just was on edge with anxiety for the entirety of this film. So it did that very well. I wanted to watch it because of the fact that the lead character was deaf and I wanted to see how they managed that. And also I get really annoyed with modern horror films and their reliance on artificial noise. So what I mean by that is like, say you've got a moment in a horror film where somebody is going to a cupboard where there's a noise, right? And they open the cupboard and the cat jumps out. But along with the cat jumping out, you have like an orchestra of noise that gives you a jump scare rather than the actual thing that's happening. Like it's not organic noise. Whereas some movies do it really well. If you think about The Grudge and like her uh, noise is really scary, right? But then I think the overuse of like loud noises to give a jump scare really annoys me about horror films. So I wanted to see how they did it. And you know what? It's not my kind of film, a home invasion film, but it wasn't a bad movie. And I, I, I don't know if enjoy is the right word because I was filled with anxiety, but I enjoyed it. I had two issues with this, which aren't really an issue. It's just me being a pedant. But I kind of like to have a little bit of a reason as to why there's someone killing everybody. It doesn't have to be a justifiable reason because there probably isn't. But I like to know some kind of 
info on the killer and I know that that for slashers that's not necessarily the done thing but that did frustrate me a little bit that there was a, just a guy in a mask and we didn't get any context for it yeah and he was he was very ambiguous <laughs> as a killer there was very little and in some slasher films you get clues as to what might be the reason as to why this person is doing it but you don't get the full story and I will say that in this film you don't even get clues you just get a man in a mask like you said that rocks up to her house and uh, that's it that you're you're in the story and shockingly I feel like I might have to go back to open house because I, I wonder if the fact that I liked this meant that I misconstrued how much I hated open house what do you mean do you think you didn't hate it as much as you think you did yeah so maybe I need to go back and have a look. I don't know if you do need to go back and have a look because I don't know if I can deal with your anger and ranting about Open House ever again. <laughs> I mean, the Open House, I think, what was... You you understood why the man was there or what his what his mode, modus operandi, is that what they say, was for killing. Uh, but there was just loads of threads that just didn't make any sense in Open mm. House, I think, was which was more the problem. What was amazing about this film was that she was kick-ass... I loved her as a character. I like the way that they used her internal... You heard her her internal dialogue, which was really clever because she's a mute, so she doesn't speak in character at any point during the film apart from when she's having dialogue with herself and you see herself talking, like actually talking to herself, which I thought was a real clever little touch. Yeah, and she um, signs earlier on in the movie that her internal dialogue voice is her mother. Because it's her mother's voice is the voice that she remembers the most from when she um, had her hearing. So I, I like and I googled it afterwards because I assumed that the the actress must have known sign language beforehand, but she didn't. She learned sign language for the role, and she also wrote the film, which I thought was quite. I was like, fair play to you. That was quite interesting. I the other thing that bothered me a little bit was that there was the whole plot line about her fella that she'd fallen out with, which is why she was on her own, called Craig, who tries to call her a couple of times during the film, and that's all we see, which is probably a bit more realistic. <laughs> but I don't want my movies realistic, damn it. <laughs> you want all your questions answered <laughs> yeah. perfectly and in the way that you want them to be answered, because that's what everybody needs. I don't know if I, if because uh, I, I I'm obviously not somebody who is deaf so I don't know if a deaf person watched this film would they have the same feelings about it as we do it's I still think the home invasion films aren't my thing Um, I find them very stressful as I know they're meant to be stressful I didn't find the the killer the home invader very convincing I hated him but I didn't find him very convincing but I thought she was a great character and I thought that her you saw her reasoning through everything and part of it was because you heard her internal dialogue but only briefly mm. and part of it was just watching her emotions and she, I thought she acted the part very well and I really appreciated that she had brief moments where she was overwhelmed by emotion and fear and cried and was like oh my god what what is happening and why is this happening and then she that was overtaken by either he survives or I do that's the bottom line here and I was like you go girl you go we also had a lot of discussions in this film about what we would do in this situation (laughs) and then realized that in reality we would both be dead within two minutes definitely I would be so overwhelmed that I think I would just open the door and let him in I wouldn't I wouldn't even have the wherewithal to think I'm going to fight this I'd just be like I'm never going to survive so I'd open the door let him in and just be like this this is it I'm, I'm over this now let's just get it over with 
But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting film. It's more of a thriller than a horror, but I was kind of keen to check it out. So what would you give this film at five? I think I gave it three and a half out of five. I can't actually remember. On Letterboxd? Yeah. So I might go and just re-edit it if I haven't, because I feel like that's where it should be. I'm I'm going to give it... I'm going to give it a... Do I give it a four? I don't know. If home invasion movies are your thing, uh, then this is a good one. But that's a very personal choice that home invasion movies aren't really my thing but i thought that it was well acted i like films with a strong female lead i'm probably going to give it a four for the simple reason that my lack of full enjoyment is because that style of film isn't my thing so which brings us to our stories this week nothing to do with the film I'd already figured going into it that it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, not one single ounce of it is to do with the film. But the the stories this week do come with a bit of a, a bit of a warning. Uh, we cover some topics in this stories that some people might find, might struggle with. They might find difficult to listen to. So our first, the, the stories are split into two halves. And the first stories are all about end of life care, which might be a bit difficult for some people to listen to. So I totally understand if you need to like nope out of this episode. The second part of the stories, uh, one of the stories is about a drunk driving incident. I don't go into the gory details, don't worry, but just that that some people might find that a bit difficult to listen to. And if you need to exit out of this one, it's perfectly understandable. The second thing I need to say is that I obviously don't go in depth in any medical terms in this episode, but there are a couple of terms that I needed to explain. I explained them very simply. Um, I'm not a medical professional, but I explained them very simply. They are very nuanced terms, and I know it, that my explanation doesn't cover the full scope of what it actually means, but I just gave a, a tiny brief overview of a couple of things, and that's I just needed to say that before we started. So our stories today are all from healthcare professionals. Oh, no. Haunted hospitals. (laughs) And uh, I thought, because we've done first responders, which were very popular episodes. So we're going to be having a look today at a variety of healthcare professionals and their experiences. Are you ready? No. In 2020, the lives of healthcare workers were catapulted into the spotlight. The news was filled with stories of exhausted bodies facing another day in battle, And in small ways, communities began to recognise the work that was being done. Healthcare workers, regardless of their qualification, their pay grade or their role, live in a state of constant flux. They are there when life is brought into this world, and they are there when life ends. They comfort families, and are there in moments of unbridled joy and moments of the deepest pain. It's often easy to dismiss the paranormal experiences of patients, We presume their visions of spectres are drug-induced or symptomatic of their illness. But what about the experiences of healthcare workers? Can we as easily dismiss them? The stories you are about to hear are very real experiences of healthcare workers that have been adapted from the books Haunted Healthcare and Haunted Healthcare 2 by Richard Eastep. Richard Eastep spent many years of his life working as a firefighter and is now a veteran paramedic. These are the stories that he has collected over the years. End-of-life care is a sad and inevitable part of healthcare. In spite of all the medications, treatments and medical advancements available to us, our bodies are simply designed to grow old and die. 
George had had a rough ride of it. His end-of-life care was littered with breathing apparatus as his lungs slowly broke down. Serena was his designated nurse, and she tried as best she could to make his days and nights comfortable. She propped him up on pillows to help smooth the passage of air to his lungs. He was permanently on a ventilator, and his ragged breath rattled around the confines of his room. As Serena walked down the corridor to his room, she would hear the beep and sigh of the various machines and the laboured breathing of George. He knew, and she knew, that he hadn't long left for this world, and each day was becoming harder and harder. When she would attend to him, he would clasp her hand and say, Please, please help me to breathe. It took every ounce of strength he had to even speak those few words. And admittedly, this was the part of the job that Serena hated. The long, drawn-out and sometimes painful wait for the inevitable. George eventually passed away one day, and that night Serena worked the night shift. Serena sat in the nurse's station with her colleagues in between rounds. It was a quiet and calm night, and they were enjoying the freedom to have a normal chat and a catch-up. But it was in the natural lull of silence in their conversation that they all heard it. Serena thought for a brief second that the sound was in her imagination, but the look on her colleague's face immediately told her that it wasn't. George's room was empty, being cleaned and prepared for the next patient in need of -of end-of-life care. And from his room came the sound of rattling, laboured breathing. No one moved. And no one said a word. They just listened. It was unmistakable. Eventually, Serena whispered, We have to check. It might be someone else, addressing the unsaid reality that the sound was happening. No one moved for a second. And in that time, the breathing stopped and a clear voice whispered, Please, please help me to breathe. All three nurses got up and made their way down the corridor. The rattled breathing continued and they found themselves stood outside the open door of George's room. The sound was coming from inside. Together they stepped into the room and the rattling breath continued louder now, and seemingly materialising from the empty bed. Not knowing what else to do, Serena spoke to the empty room, feeling simultaneously terrified and stupid. It's over now, George. It's okay, it's time for you to go. And with that, it stopped. This wasn't the only end-of-life experience that Serena had had. There was one other that confirmed to her that there was something else at play that existed just out of our line of sight. ICU is a high-stakes place to work. It is a case of constant change, deep trauma and a place where all of the worries and anxieties of patients and families are constantly swirling in the air. John was a regular visitor to the ICU. His health had been failing for a long time and his life was a boomerang of ICU visits, miraculous survivals and home help. Serena was in his room and he looked at her almost invisible in a mess of wires, tubes and machines and he said, 
I can't do this anymore. I'm so tired. Please don't wake me up the next time. The request was simple and Serena believed the conviction. But in the legal sense, it's not as simple as that. There are medical cases where a family or next of kin can choose to sign a DNR, a do not resuscitate. It simply means that if the patient slips into cardiac arrest or another medical emergency, the medical professionals make them as comfortable as possible, but do not intervene. Serena knew that in order to fulfill John's wish, a DNR would have to be signed and agreed to by his next of kin. But before any of that could be organised, John slipped into cardiac arrest and was again miraculously brought back. Serena knew she had to act now, to stop the constant cycle of resuscitation, and she hastily called John's brother to discuss the prospect of a DNR. Mid-conversation, someone tugged so hard on Serena's ponytail that she almost dropped the phone, and she turned furiously, thinking it was someone's ill-timed and stupid joke. She wasn't faced with a sniggering colleague, though, She turned around, and standing outside the nurse's station glaring at her was John. He was still wearing his hospital gown, but his tubes and wires were nowhere to be seen. John shook his head slowly at her, and then disappeared. Serena, shocked at what she had just seen, told John's brother that he needed to get to the hospital as John was in cardiac arrest again, and if he wanted to see him, he needed to get there as soon as he could. She hung up the phone, and just as she did so, the alarm sounded that John was in cardiac arrest. She rushed to his aid in the resus, and whispered to John to hold on until his brother got there. And he did. John held on until his brother arrived to say goodbye. And he died three minutes later. I often wonder if a lot of -of end-of-life care stories are just born of trauma. Families who can't let go of their loved ones or patients who themselves are afraid of what death might hold for them. The brain is very powerful and can bring comfort to us in the strangest of ways. We often hear stories of people close to death seeing long dead loved ones who seemingly return to take them away and it's been suggested by scientists that our brain conjures up these images to bring us comfort. The next story however made me question this. Healthcare professionals see death on a regular basis. Some deaths might be peaceful and some may be traumatic. Sandra was an experienced EMT and was doing what is commonly referred to as a hospice run. A hospice run is when an end-of-life patient is transported from one facility to another or from a facility to their home. This run wasn't unusual. It was an old lady whose health had naturally begun to fade and her and her family had made the decision to allow her to live out the rest of her life in peace and comfort. On the run, Sandra sat in the back of the ambulance with the old lady, chatting to her and generally checking her vital obs. The lady was peaceful, but unresponsive, until she opened her eyes and looked at Sandra, and then looked at the empty space beside her. She smiled, and then said softly, Frank... I knew you would come back to get me. Sandra looked at the space beside her out of the corner of her eye, knowing that it was empty, and felt an icy cold chill that made the hair on her arm stand on end. 
The old lady continued her conversation with the invisible Frank, pausing for and responding to silent responses to her questions. She told Frank that she was excited to see Beth and that she couldn't wait to explore the lighthouses again. She also told Frank that she had lost her favourite sweater, the white one with the holly blossoms on it. She then turned to Sandra and said, My husband Frank is here with us and he says that Andrea has packed away my favourite sweater in the box at the back of the cupboard. He says you should ask Ben about it. Sandra didn't know who Ben or Andrea were, but she assured the old lady that she would ask and continue to monitor her and chat to her when she halted her conversation with Frank. When they arrived at their destination, the old lady awoke again and motioned for Sandra to come closer to her. Sandra did as she asked, and the old lady whispered, Skip is very proud of you, but he does say that he would like you to dust the hummels. And with that, the old lady was wheeled away. Skip was Sandra's grandfather. When he had died, he had left Sandra his collection of Hummel figurines. And it was true. She hadn't dusted them in quite some time. As she stood trying to get her head around what had just happened, a man stepped towards her to thank her for transporting his mother. He introduced himself as Ben and Sandra recounted the story of the white sweater. Ben called for his sister Andrea, who confirmed that last week she had packed away her mother's white sweater in a box at the back of the closet. She had been alone in the house when she did it. Frank was the lady's husband, who had died 22 years before, and Beth was her sister, who had died 20 years before. When they were young, they would travel around and explore lighthouses together. These end-of-life stories fascinate me when it comes to the paranormal element because they seem to be so varied yet seem to confirm some kind of moment, even even if it's momentary, some kind of post-life spiritual existence. Which is very must be very comforting for lots of people. Like, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I would like to think that the people that I've lost in my life have gone on to something better and happier, whatever that is. And I, and I like these stories, they just blow my mind as well. I, I just, because I think that, that it's very easy, like I said, to, to say, you know, if a patient sees somebody that they've, that they've loved and lost, that it's uh, drugs or it's your brain trying to comfort you. And, and I do understand that, that there's a very scientific element to that. And for families, that might sound really nice that their family members have come back and get them. But but that's, I don't know, but the, the, these stories just made me go, oh, oh, that's weird. That's different. Well, you've got in the last story with Sandra's story, you've got that, that element of relatives coming back which you could put down to drugs, but then you get some seriously specific details on things. Like how did the old lady know where her daughter had put the jumper? And how did the old lady know about Sandra's grandfather and the fact that he left her hummels? Because unless there was some kind of communication with the afterlife, it's bizarre. Hummels is really specific as well, right? If she had said, your granddad is really proud of you and he loves you very much. That's vague enough for it to be relevant to any number of people but your granddad skip left behind left you know he wants you to dust the hummels is so specific 
It's really specific. It's really specific. And it makes you wonder if, like, you know, there's other other spirits bopping around when the veil is thin and they take their opportunity. <laughs> you know, like, Frank is there. Frank and Beth are there with the old lady. And then Skip's just knocking around in the background. He's like, oh, that's my granddaughter. Tell her to dust the hummels. Yeah. And of all <laughs> things, I mean, how would you be secretly a little bit annoyed if, of all things, your granddad could say to you, he goes, do just... Just do your cleaning, please. Just, 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 you know, I left you one thing. Just dust them. I mean, it's, it is, yeah, definitely. But there's also that thing where it's such a specific detail that actually it's probably more comforting than it, it feels to us reading it. Because, like, dusting the Hummels is essentially saying this is actually me. Like, that's a very good point. Like saying you're proud of someone or is nice, obviously, or keep going or, you know, something positive is nice. But it doesn't give that specificity. Specificity. It's not specific enough. Whereas saying dust the Hummels is saying, hey, Sandra, this this is me. You know, like there's nobody else that could be. Like, how would that lady know specifically about the Hummels? And if it's something that's really dear, if it was something that's really dear to her granddad, it makes sense that he'd want them dusted. You know, I like it. I like it a lot. The other two stories, on the other hand, Serena's stories, I feel a bit sorry for Serena because <laughs> in both situations, it's the patient sort of coming back to slap her wrist a little bit, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, end of life is a really horrible, well, I can imagine it can be both lovely and incredibly horrible position to work in because you probably do have patients sometimes who are in a lot of pain and, and who are saying things to you like, I just I just want this to be over, whatever. So I can imagine it's very traumatic in a number of ways. But like yanking her ponytail, oh, a man. I, I'd be like, John, I know you're struggling here, but don't yank my ponytail, okay? I'd be very annoyed with that. Very annoyed with that energy. Not happy with it. But then you've also got George that repeats what he said almost as if it was like, I asked you to help me to breathe and you didn't. Do you know what I mean? It's like the repeating of that last mo- those last moments. And witnessed by numerous, numerous people. Yeah. It wasn't just Serena. Because there's sometimes with stories like these where if it's just one person seeing multiple things, you go, well, maybe that actually is about you. Um, and maybe it's about how you're managing, living in or working in this really intense environment. But I haven't. I tried to pick stories that had more than one witness, for that reason. Because I was like, okay, let's let's try and get multiple ones going. I just thought, like, if maybe at the end of your life, because your conviction is so strong about something that you do have the power to do things like yank somebody's hair or come back and and you know, not realize that actually it is your time to go. Very very strange. So was John astral projecting? Is that what you're saying? Maybe. Hmm. It's an interesting, interesting thought, right? I mean, I still don't really understand what astral projection is. To be, to be really frank, it's, and we all know it's actually astral surfing, isn't it? It's, it's astral planing. <laughs> I mean, I don't really understand what it is, but I'm going to say yes anyway. End of life care is an inevitable part of healthcare, but end of life is not always a slow exit. Sometimes it can involve a sudden and tragic departure. A&D, or the emergency room if you're in the States, is a strange place at the best of times, and at the worst of times, it's chaos. People who present to A&E can be there for a variety of reasons, from earaches to stabbings. In cases of real, genuine emergency, the paramedics on the scene will generally call ahead to give the A&E department time to prepare. A&E staff are intensively trained to manage high-level trauma cases, And for Annie, today it was no different. A call had come in to prep for a major car accident. There had been a two-car collision and multiple casualties. 
The trauma team rushed to prepare multiple areas to accommodate the incoming casualties, and Annie waited with her team for her patient to be brought in. The paramedics zipped in with a man on a gurney, and he was in a bad way. He was young, early 20s, and had clearly suffered some serious injuries in the collision. As the paramedics barked stats and injuries at the team, they set to work and the patient began to fight. Despite his injuries, he kicked and flailed and cursed and shouted. Annie was alarmed. If he didn't calm down, there wouldn't be a way for them to tend to his injuries and stabilise his condition. Eventually, the team were able to pin the patient down long enough to strap Velcro straps around his wrists and ankles to keep him in place so they could treat him. As Annie leaned across him, she smelled the pungent, acrid smell of alcohol and realised that the man was incredibly drunk. And that explained his behaviour. Annie glanced across the room and noticed that the team were not alone. Standing watching their progress was a police officer, solemn and silent and next to him was a man in a white shirt and black trousers. He had glasses on, and flecks of blood splattered on his shirt. He must have been an investigator. Annie had seen this numerous times before and realised that her patient had clearly broken the law. She assumed that he must have been a drunk driver, and had been the cause of the accident. She made a mental note to check the status of the other patients, and continued with her work. After the trauma case had been managed, Annie sat in the nurse's station debriefing with her team. They were discussing what had just happened and the gravity of the story unfolded. The patient had been intoxicated and ploughed into the car of a family. A wife, husband and two children, none of whom survived. Oh, Annie exclaimed. That explains the police officer and the inspector. Was he an inspector? I assumed he was. Another nurse responded. Oh, you mean the man with the glasses? Yeah, I don't know who he was, actually. The others were puzzled. What man with glasses? There was no man with glasses. What were they talking about? There was just a police officer. Annie knew she wasn't mistaken. There had been a man who had watched the whole thing. She didn't just catch a glimpse of him. She saw enough to register the blood splatter on his shirt. The conversation continued but Annie remained confused until the time came when the bodies were moved to the morgue. Annie caught a glimpse of the father who had lost his life and there he was. He looked almost unharmed. His glasses had somehow remained intact and there was a blood splatter on his crisp white shirt. When we think about healthcare professionals, we generally think about bustling hospitals, paramedics and A&E. But a side of healthcare that perhaps doesn't jump to the forefront of our mind are those that work in mental health units or forensic units. Danny was one such healthcare worker. He worked as a psychiatric nurse in a female forensics unit. Forensic units are designed for people who have broken the law but have a mental health condition or illness that deems them unsuitable for the mainstream prison system. The unit that Danny was working in had been an asylum from the early Victorian era and was a dark and sad place with a dark and sad history. The majority of women there were incredibly violent and dangerous and had committed unspeakable crimes. But like any job, 
even the strangest develops a routine. Danny was working a night shift and had popped to the kitchen to do the tea and coffee run for the staff. As he stood in the kitchen prepping the cups, he became aware of a sudden and drastic change in temperature. The air around him felt icy cold and he felt the hair prick it on the back of his neck. Working with violent patients causes you to develop a sixth sense for when something is wrong or for when you're being watched. He slowly turned around and someone was standing in the doorway watching him and then they ran straight towards him. Danny braced for impact and in his head he went through the protocols. He had been attacked before and had seen other staff members being attacked and he knew what was coming. He shut his eyes, anchored his legs and bent his knees. And nothing happened. He opened his eyes and he was completely alone and there was no one in the room. He thought back to the person who was standing in the doorway and realised that it wasn't a person. It was a shadow figure. The shadow was large and featureless. Definitely not human, but humanoid. Danny was shook. He had heard rumours and stories about the unit being haunted, but had dismissed them. He returned to the nurse's station with cups of tea and coffee on a tray in his trembling hands. He decided not to tell anyone. The unit was rigged up with CCTV that covered every inch of the place. It was necessary for both the safety of the staff and the patients. Danny and his colleagues sat drinking tea and keeping an eye on the screen when an ear-shattering shriek pierced through the speakers of the monitors. The shriek continued and was filled with anger and rage and was accompanied by the sound of smashing and banging. The men ran from the station and towards the source of the noise. They burst onto the ward and were met with confused looks from staff. Nothing had happened. Everything was quiet and all of the patients were calm and asleep. But the men knew what they had heard. Danny's dismissal of the previous claims of the unit being haunted now started to feel a bit silly, and he mulled over everything as he did his rounds later in the night. The patient in 31 had a habit of talking to herself and it wasn't unusual to hear her chitter-chattering in the darkness. He approached her cell, and as he did so, he heard something that he wasn't expecting. She was chatting, but something was responding. A deep, guttural voice was responding to her. It's not unusual for patients with certain conditions to adopt different voices, but for Danny this felt different. He had never known her to speak in different voices before and he approached the cell and opened the shutter to check on her. She was there, kneeling on the floor in the middle of the cell, illuminated only by the moonlight that was streaming in through the window. She was mumbling away and then stopped, turned and looked Danny straight in the eye and smiled and the male voice answered her from the shadows. Danny no longer works at that facility. There is one last element of these stories that I think is probably interesting, or maybe important to mention. 
1907, Duncan MacDougall published a study where he posited to have discovered the weight of the human soul. It was 21 grams. He had measured the mass of a number of people at the time of death and found that one lost 21 grams when they passed. The experiment has been widely criticised for its incredible number of flaws and is often used as a way to describe how not to do scientific experiments, but it has remained in the public conscious. Throughout the reading of these two books, there were several stories of healthcare professionals who had witnessed variants of an object exiting the body of people at their time of death. These books or witnesses didn't reference a belief in God, souls, heaven or hell, but many spoke about seeing a glowing mist rise from a body at the time of death. Some spoke of a light that would seem to shoot from the body, and some spoke of a glowing orb that rose from the patient's chest. Perhaps in a world where you are constantly surrounded by death and tragedy, the brain finds a way to imagine that there is something else afterwards, and that these healthcare professionals have found a way to comfort themselves. Or perhaps, in their world of life and death, the veil is just that bit thinner. I want to start by saying I fully understand why Danny no longer works in that facility. He lasted a lot longer than I would have. That's some weird activity, but seems to seemingly quite common. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because in the like intro to the book, uh, Richard Eastep wrote that he would regularly ask, I mean, as he got more older in his career, as it were, he was more confident to ask people and didn't feel as silly asking people, hey, have you ever had a weird experience? And he said the amount of times that nurses and doctors would like laugh at him or healthcare workers or care workers or whatever. And they'd say, well, I don't believe in ghosts. Don't be, like, that's ridiculous. But there was this one time <laughs> and they'd go on and, and tell him a story that was absolutely horrific. And he'd be like, and you don't believe in ghosts after this? <laughs> It's almost like Danny's story amps up because like it's it's quite scary seeing like a shadow figure run at you and then but presuming it's a you know a patient bracing yourself and then there not being anything there that's quite scary but it could also be written off because it was just you experiencing it right then to be with someone else with a colleague and to hear a screaming a very loud screaming across the video security system going to the place where the scream was coming from and then it not being there and everybody being like, what are you doing? Makes is a little bit more hard to explain away because someone else heard it and reacted in the same way as you. And then the creepiest of all. <laughs> right, because I know, like we know, I know from like other cases and documentaries and stuff that, you know, doing more than one voice when you're unwell is, is not an uncommon thing. And I was like, okay, so it could be that. And then he said, oh, it wasn't common of that lady, which is, you know, one thing. But then to have her looking at you and a voice come from the darkness, I'd be like, nope, I would have quit then and there. See you later. They did also write, so Danny in that story talked about how it was a full moon when it happened. And I I have spoken about this before and I, I try not to make a big thing about it because I know that people will be will message me and be like, well, that's not true. You're being ridiculous. But when you work in a healthcare facility, even in a school, in a place where there's lots of people, the full moon makes a difference to how people behave. I know that sounds very medieval. I know it sounds wild. And I know that people listening will be rolling their eyes. But I, I'm telling you, the full moon changes how people behave. I would have laughed you out of this room had I not also worked in a school. And I can't explain it. 
but there does seem to be some correlation with mass weird behavior not weird behavior but mass naughty behavior and the moon yeah there's a there's a like an intensity that happens it's very strange it's very strange and my dad who doesn't believe in anything would always say that full moon nights working as a paramedic were always busier and always had weirder things happen so you know this just just wanted to add that into the story I mean, you can add that in all you want, but what 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 is that? What's the voice from the darkness? Why why who's there? Who is she talking to? Obviously, a werewolf. That's why I said about the full moon. What in her cell with her? <laughs> in her cell. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, that's that is that's scary. Oh, my mind is doing flips over that. I'm not. I'm not on board. There were a lot of stories too that kind of blurred the lines between the paranormal and mental health issues, which I didn't want to delve into because I don't. I don't. I think mental health issues can cause you to do incredibly terrifying things and can make you appear very terrifying to other people but this guy Danny addressed that in his story where he said you know that he'd worked with multiple patients who spoke in numerous voices and while it can be really scary and alarming it is also quite common in particular fields of mental health and whatever um so yeah I just that's why I included that story because it gave me the heebie-jeebies too I'd imagine also if you're working in that environment where you've encountered numerous patients where that happens it's probably less scary the more you encounter it so actually you're just like okay yeah and you know i've i've worked with children who have behaved in similar ways and the first time it happens it is petrifying and then you you do get used to it it is weird what you get used to but you get used to it and then you kind of you you start to realize that this is part of of how it's how whatever's going on is manifesting so yeah, you do get it's it is amazing what you get used to, but I don't know. I you don't get know used what I do. And then a voice comes out of the darkness. Yeah, and then <laughs> nope. you go, I'm never working here again, I'm leaving. Okay, just to calm myself down, I'm gonna have to be a little bit logical. Voice projection is a thing. Yep. So it could just be this is the first time she's manifested that voice and the way that her mind is working has allowed her to project it. Or that he's already really spooked. Yeah. And he is seeing it in a different way than he would ordinarily because weird stuff has happened and it's put him on edge. So that, uh, very logical. I'm proud of you. I'm impressed. Well uh, done. Do you know how we'd know for sure whether it was her projecting her voice? How? If she was drinking a glass of water at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> very Enfield poltergeist of you. <laughs> uh, they also, very horrifically, they also taped her mouth shut in the Enfield poltergeist when they did that. Yeah. It's also a common ventriloquist trick, isn't it? To drink a oh, glass of water. Yeah, that's what I, that was what I was actually referencing. Well, I thought you were referencing the Enfield poltergeist. No, I mean, now you've said it, it makes sense. But I was I, what I was referencing was actually the ventriloquist. It's a qu- common ventriloquist trick because everybody goes, oh, we can't be projecting because he's drinking. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, we were not on the same wavelength there at all. No, but it worked on, on multiple levels. Yeah, it did. Yeah. It did. That first story is... Um, the one from Annie in the A&E department could just be, you know, again, a manifestation of a stressful experience. But it wasn't just her that saw the guy with the glasses and the fact that it looked exactly like the guy that had died. It's quite compelling. And she said in her testimony or whatever you'd like to call it, that it didn't just look like the guy. It was the guy. It was it was the dad who she had seen standing in the room. And I guess... You know, I, I used to watch a lot of like A&E TV shows, <laughs> you know, like the reality ones where they're like 24 hours in a and I had to stop watching them because I, I cry so much at everything that it just seemed, it seemed like some sort of weird self-destructive behavior to watch it and just sob. Um, But they do like, when the trauma teams are getting ready for a, a, a trauma case to come in, like it's pretty incredible what they do and they don't ask any questions, they just treat that person. 
and that's it. That's just the way it goes. And I guess it makes sense that if that person is a criminal or if that person is is somebody who has broken the law, a police officer will be there to to kind of make sure they don't escape without any justice being served or whatever. Uh, yeah, so I, I just, you, mu- you must get used to people just being there. Yeah. And if they're in your way, you say, get out of my way. It doesn't matter who you are. But other than that, you just get on with what you have to do because you have a job to do and you have to do it quickly. And if it's serious enough, it might have a plain plainclothes detective alongside that officer. So to not think anything of it is a good thing because, she, you know, her mind should be on other things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Where you kind of recognise that it's happening and you go, okay, I kind of, I, this must be a criminal case. We just carry on and, and get on with it. I don't understand. Reading these stories makes me, I don't understand how healthcare workers do it. Genuinely. Like this stuff and not just not every healthcare worker works in end of life and not every healthcare worker works in trauma, but you're still regardless of what you work in, working in healthcare is must be just so hard. Even if you're just working in the GP's office, like it it, it just must be so hard. And my God, without all the ghost stuff on top of it, hats off to any healthcare worker because holy moly. But maybe the ghost is, you know, the ghost is the least of least of the things that they need to worry about. So actually, just get on with it. Whereas for you, me, me and you, yeah, well, me you particularly, I can't speak for you, but for me, the ghost would be something I would worry about. But that's the thing, isn't it? It's the living you need to be worried about, yeah. and not the dead. At least with the dead, they can't um, hurl abuse at you, or you know, that they kind of thing. Can we've definitely had stories of ghosts hurling abuse at people? Okay, true. I take that back. <laughs> I take it back. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find everything you need to know about us on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. You can also send your own spooky experience to Podcast at gmail.com. You can sign up for our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content. I've only just realised recently that our Patreon is apparently really hard to find by searching it. I think because the content is over 18, because we like swear and stuff in it. So the link to our Patreon and everything else, our YouTube channel and all that is in the description of every episode. So if you want to find it, the link will be in the description. It'll take you straight there. And on that note, we shall see you next week. Bye.